Hello, good people. Before we dive into today's episode, I have a quick favor to ask. If Say More has struck a chord with you, and if there's somebody in your life who you think would really enjoy tuning into these conversations, please take a moment to share Say More with them. Building the Say More community, it really matters because there's a growing number of us who have decided that no matter the complexity or challenges that we see around us, we're still going to do our best to not only not do harm, but to make things better. That is a beautiful and bold commitment, and the best-kept secret, y'all, is that there are more of us than we're led to believe. So share, say more, and if you have a moment, please rate and subscribe to our podcast. It helps us get these conversations out to a broader community of people. We've lined up some incredible episodes, and I'd hate for you to miss a single one. Thank you for your support. Now let's get into the show. I think so much of the college access and college success process is focused on the college. Do they want me and can I succeed there? Instead of flipping that mindset and thinking, is that college worthy of me as a student being on campus? Do they have the right settings for me to be successful? Because in other parts of business, we put the power at the consumer level. It's what the consumer wants. But when we talk about college, we flip it. It's always about what the college wants. And what I keep saying to our staff and what we keep saying to our students is that narrative consumerism of like, you are the consumer. You have a dollar. You are going to purchase a future. You are making an investment. And so you need to reward those institutions that have demonstrated they want to make a proportional investment in you. At a time when our society can feel more divided than ever, join us as we explore what it means to adapt and evolve together. Welcome to Say More. I'm Tulane Montgomery, CEO of New Profit and your host. Hey, Say More family. I have a question for you. What comes to mind when you hear the following words? SATs, college essays, AP exams, admissions office, dean's office, bachelor's degree. You may have, if you're like me, gone back to what was a complex and difficult time in your life. Going through the college process, graduating college, going into the job market, these are all complex terrains, often unfamiliar, and according to everyone we know, high stakes. It's where you can make or break your future if you believe the stories we're told as young people. It's also a huge financial investment. My guest today, Steve Colon, runs Bottom Line, a nonprofit that mentors students of color from communities that are often overlooked when it comes to college access and completion support. Today, Steve and I talk about a student-centered approach to college access and success. What would we do differently if we focused on the needs of the student in higher ed, as opposed to the needs of the higher ed institution. And if you are one of the many Americans who have lately been wondering if a college degree is even worth it anymore, you'll get our best effort at an answer today. Whether you agree or not remains to be seen, but we're going to share our thinking with you and we welcome your feedback and your perspective. We also talk about the Supreme Court's decision to reject affirmative action in college admissions. We talk about the notion of meritocracy in this country, and our personal experiences as leaders of color. You'll come to find out if you don't already know that Steve is not only brilliant, but he is also hilarious. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. 
So listen, I'm so happy that you're here, Steve. I'm so happy you're here. I'm excited. Yeah, you and I, it feels like we've known each other for a very long time. You know, we're already family. We met, though, not that long ago in the scheme of things, right? Through Mm -hmm. the Pahara Fellowship. We are part of the mighty C40 crew. The 40th You ought to know. You ought to know. That's better known as, you know, ask somebody, you know, all of those things. And, um, you know, but it really has been for me, Steve, wonderful, because one of the things that gives me great energy and hope and gratitude is this, the fact that we can, you know, make new friends and find family, you know, as adults, you know, Mm -hmm. and and like, what a gift that is, you know, what a gift. And so the fact that I get to call you brother, you know, and friend is just a real blessing. Um, So we're going to have a good time today on Say More, and we're going to talk about some some real things because there's a lot of real things going on. There's a lot of real things going on, and and, uh, who better to talk about it with than family? So I'm excited about it. That's right. That's right. So, you know, one of the things I know to be true about these lives we're living, you know, and Steve, as the CEO of Bottom Line, you are on any given day doing five things at one time. (laughs) And so sometimes, you know, getting here to this conversation can take a little bit of a bridge. And so I like to help us both get here by just doing a little icebreaker, a little warm up. And, you know, one of the things I love about you, Steve, is that you are the embodiment of joyful leadership. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Like you have never been confused about the importance. No. Right. And so I guess I just want to ask you, like, what's something that just cracked you up lately? Oh, (laughs) so I have a, um, I have two young boys. 13 and 10. And my oldest just took his, uh, you have to take a a test to choose a high school in New York City. And so my oldest just took his test. And so he got home from the test, he was burnt, and we let him play an hour of video games, which we usually don't do during the week. Mm -hmm. My youngest got home yesterday and realized that we let the older play video games. And he was, it was as if I had taking that child out and left him in the cold for 30 hours without any food or clothes. He was just dying. He was just like, Xavier gets everything. It's not fair. I'm running away. It was just this. And I was, I couldn't stop laughing about how he's like, nobody works harder than me. He tells me, my 10 year old turned to me and said, you couldn't walk a mile in my shoes. No, he didn't. With a straight face? <laughs> With a straight face. I was like, boy, you better get out of my face. <laughs> <laughs> you are tempting fate, young man. That's right. That's right. Oh. Uh, but it, it, it brought me so much joy to sort of just, just to watch his, his self-advocacy, to see that yeah. little man, you know, just rise and grow from a little 10-year-old, you know, two foot nothing to to be my size and to to push back on me it was it was really fun to watch my wife and I had a good good laugh about it <laughs> that's actually really beautiful <laughs> and there is something beautiful i mean one shout out to you steve cuz you know in the moment sometimes funny maybe it could have been a little activating the fact that you yeah. saw the beauty in it shout out to you as a loving dad and to your wife and your family and right like you have raised this young man who has his sense of self who knows mm-hmm. his worth who has a voice who feels safe enough in your care to speak his truth. He's not afraid of conflict. You know, he's brave. I mean, those are beautiful. Those are beautiful Beautiful. things. He got a little too much New York in him sometimes. I need to, (laughs) I need to calm him down, but (laughs) the mile in my shoes, I'm saying you must've said that to him or in front of him. I don't know where he got that from, but, uh, (laughs) 
<laughs> it was it was particularly joyful to watch. I mean, listen, I'm not gonna say I'm always with it in the moment, but yeah, it, it yeah. took me a second, then I laughed really loud. <laughs> and did you give him? Vi- okay, but the real question, what we want to know, is did you give him video game time? No, I didn't give him no video game time. He didn't. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I'm clear. I was entertained, nah, but my, I was listen, not my moved. Parents, my parents, my parents raised me. And they know, like, uh, you know, the kids know. I'm like, I don't, I don't suffer this. Like, ain't no, ain't no crying and screaming going to make me turn what I, what I think is right. Uh, and so he did not play no video games. I did. I played in front of him. I was like. Oh, God. Oh, God. You know, I feel like one of the joy, that's like what, there's these little delights in parenting and raising children. And, you know, that's one of them, what you just did. Like, oh, you can't. But I can like that's that can. Yeah, but that's just I'm sorry. It just feels really good. But the other thing is like the fact that it is so easy to embarrass your adolescent children. You know, all you got to do is just exist and breathe deep. And they're like, Mm -hmm. oh, my God. And that that is also hours of entertainment. I'm sure you have engaged in that, too. I I have. Yeah, yeah. it's fun. It is. It is. It is. (laughs) It is one of those things that, you know, being a parent, you can't really prepare for, right? Yeah, it's uh, yeah. it's like being a CEO. You can't really prepare for it. You're just in yeah. the work. And so you got to find little joys. And so the embarrassing the children and, and uh, poking a little fun at them is... I'm sure they'll be talking about it with what a, uh, with a mental health professional as they get older at some point. <laughs> exactly. That moment where you play yeah. the video game in front of him, it's going to come back, Steve. It's not done yet. Yeah, it's, not, it's not done yet. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that is yeah. so funny. I love it. Well, listen, yeah. so, so let's get into it a little bit, Steve. Um, you know, with Say More, we like to, we talk to incredible leaders like yourself, people who have decided to, one, do their best to do no harm, but mm-hmm. also to build something better. And yeah. you're, you're, that is absolutely true of you. And so one of the things I like to know when I talk to folks like yourself is tell me a little bit about your story. And what I mean is like, what are the things that you experienced as you grew up that led you to sit in the seat you're in today, that led you to be so passionate about education and educational access? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it started from my parents. Neither one of them had the opportunity to earn a college degree. Um, actually one of my parents just, you know, didn't even graduate high school. Mm-hmm. And so they started very young. So talking to us about the importance of, of college, the importance of getting a degree. It was like always really critical education was always at the forefront. But I recognized quickly when I was in high school that while I had a lot of emotional support and there was a lot of love in the family, no one technically knew how to help me be successful, right? No one knew how to fill the forms out, where to apply, what was a good college, what did that mean? And I went to high school, like many high schools in America, where I didn't have ready access to an informed professional that could help me. And so I struggled. Mm -hmm. And I did all the things wrong, right? I I lost $2,000 of my parents' money because I put a down payment in a college that I, I knew I couldn't afford, but I really wanted to go to. I ended up not going there. And And then when I got to college, it was sort of, it was foreign to me. I stood on campus. I felt out of place. I felt like an imposter. I felt overwhelmed by the size of the space. And if it wasn't for a peer of mine, whose family also comes from Puerto Rico and, and, but he grew up in affluence and he went to private schools. And so he Mm. sort of like took me under his wing and he was like my advisor throughout the whole time. And if it wasn't for him, I probably wouldn't have graduated. And so that experience of recognizing the difference between someone with the process knowledge and the expertise to be 
help me make informed decisions versus just the love that my family gave me that that difference that made in my life felt really profound mm. and it was i was lucky that i found you know this and this friend of mine this peer and so i i quickly realized that you know while everybody's life luck plays a part of it luck isn't a strategy That's and right. we need to sort of figure out how to help students rely less on luck and more on you know, getting good sound support and advice at key moments in their lives. That's really significant. And you talked about this friend who, because of economic Mm -hmm. background, had exposure to the protocols and procedures and the rules of the game that you didn't. You were and are deeply loved. And love could not replace the need for information and access to information, right? We now understand and have the research to show us that social connections like the one you had Mm -hmm. with your friend are really the most powerful way to enable, you know, just transformative outcomes for young people who are outside of economic opportunity. Like it's social connections that Mm -hmm. change the game and you, you know, your story speaks to that. So it's really powerful. But now talk to us about bottom line. You know, you, you lead this organization. This organization has grown tremendously. I had the privilege of being with you and your staff (laughs) at your in-person staff retreat in Chi-Town. It was amazing to be there and to see the community that you're, you're leading. Tell us about Bottom Line, your mission and the work of Bottom Line. Yeah. So I think it fundamentally is grounded in this idea of creating economic and social mobility for the young people that we work with. And so our deep held belief is that a bachelor's degree, manageable college debt, and a great first job are transformational on your pathway towards economic and social mobility. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, we partner with degree aspiring students who come from underrepresented and low income backgrounds who are often the first in their families to to go to college to help them get in graduate and hopefully go far in life, right? And I think it's it's that simple. And, you know, we view college as a very utilitarian thing, right? The purpose of college is to better prepare you for your future life and help you get a great start, a great career. Yeah. And so when you use that lens, when you think about it as the mobility anchor, you approach those decisions in a very different way. What's beautiful about our model is what we just said. It's about relationships. It's about the magic. The beauty is a well-informed, well-trained advisor who cares deeply about their students sitting down and helping that student make important decisions about where they want to go, what they want to be, and how to get there. I love that so much. And so it's the integration of the love yeah. and the relationship and the knowledge and the information. And it's that the two together. Like if you just have one, yeah. that probably isn't going to change outcome, right? But it's the integration of the two. Yeah. And and I'd add to it. I mean, I think, you know, we are a huge believer in the power of data. And so the information we bring is some of the most rich and powerful data and information to that conversation to say like, here are options. Here's what they mean. Here's what they could mean. Here's the impacts they can have in your life. And here are the things you need to know in order to make the decision. Ultimately, it's the student's decision about where to go and what to do, where to be. Mm. Our job is just to give them the best information to make the most informed decision. So I love that. Now you talk about it's the student's decision Mm -hmm. and, you know, young people in general are in larger numbers deciding that the value of a college education is at best debatable, at worst a myth. And, you know, you keep hearing more about this. The prices are going up more and more. There's just so much. There's a real healthy criticism about the value 
of college education. What would you say to, I have a young woman in my life who is 12, who was academically gifted, who one day was talking to me and she was like, you know, and she was really, you know, wrought up. She was like, I don't think I want to go to college. And she felt the pressure and expectation. And so she was worried about disappointing people who love her. But she also really had questions about if college was something that would be valuable for her based on the dream she wants to achieve in her life. So what would you say to her? Yeah, I would say two things. First and foremost, that a bachelor's degree is the most consistent and reliable way for a person to realize lifelong success. So here's some food for thought. You know, a lot of us have been reading the public debates and hearing the arguments against the current value of a college education. But according to the New York Times, folks with a bachelor's degree are more likely to live longer than those without one. Yet more than 60% of Americans don't have a college degree. I'm sure there are a range of factors that contribute to that statistic being true. And yet, it's also true that more than 60% of Americans don't have a college degree. Something to consider as we weigh the value of college education today. There is a wealth of goodness that comes from that bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that college has become more and more expensive. And what I tell young people is that Every college isn't for everybody, but there's a college for everybody. So as you think about your career paths, it's about finding the institution that can help you unlock your potential without it itself creating additional barriers to your success, right? Mm -hmm. Financial barriers without coming out with a lot of debt. And then the other thing I'll, I'll often say is one of the reasons why we've driven in this direction is that there's a wealth of first jobs that people can get that don't require a bachelor's degree that pay really well, right? He's like, I can go get this one quick certificate and I can be a coder or I can go, you know, and get into a union and be an electrician. And those are amazing roles. The question I always ask folks, I always say, like, what about the next job? What about the, if you want a promotion, what about the job after that? The college degree is not about the salary of that first job. It is about mobilizing a career in front of you mm-hmm. and having a, a career mobilizing first job. And so really thinking about college as a stepping towards stone towards a pathway, a career pathway, rather than that first job out of college. Now, that first job out of college is tremendously important, mm-hmm. but it is not the be all end all, right? We all have very long careers. And I don't know about you. I've, you know, I've been in a variety of different, I've had a, a several careers in my yes. lifetime, yes. right? And the thing that has served me well has been um, that bachelor's degree throughout all of them. Yeah, it's so important. And it makes me wonder, Steve, like, how did it come to be that something that is so proven as one of the most, if not the most reliable way mm-hmm. to accelerate longevity? in your career? How did it come to be that we're questioning it so broadly? Yeah. I mean, I think if, you know, in my less sinister moments, Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) in my less sinister moments, I believe it is because we have so woefully underfunded our K through 12 system and not provided the type of access to the type of information supports that this type of nuanced decision requires, we've then forced the professionals in those schools to use shortcuts and heuristics to give advice. So because 
we don't know how, most folks didn't know how to help a student find the best college for them at an affordable price. It was like, go with the best name brand college you can go to. Just get the degree, that's all that matters. We gave students this average, unsophisticated advice because we didn't have a lot of time to invest in actually getting to know them personally and figuring out what was the best options for them. That we created a population of students who frankly, probably went to the wrong institutions, mm. incurred a lot of debt. Many of them never graduated. And it created a debt crisis where you have lots and lots of students with significant educational debt, no degree to help them on a career pathway to pay down that debt. And so there's no wonder why people are questioning it, because if you are not a savvy consumer of higher education, if you do not have the right information to make an informed decision, it could potentially ruin your life for quite some time. And so we've got to, we've got to understand the, the impact and the moment that we're asking students and the decision that we're asking students to make at 17, 18 years old, right? It's a life changing moment, you know, decision. And so we've got to treat it with the respect it deserves. Bottom line students are 23% more likely to graduate in four years than their peers. And they're 19% more likely to graduate in six years than their peers. And that the size of that difference is equivalent to the size of difference of degree outcomes from students from the highest income bracket and the lowest income bracket. So bottom line is effectively erasing the impact of economics on a student's likelihood to get a degree. Mm. And then when you when we look at our own data and we're seeing our students graduate with about $18,000 worth of debt, between eighteen dollars and $19,000 worth of debt on average, which is less than I still owe on my college <laughs> career. <laughs> um, the overwhelming majority of them are either gainfully employed or in graduate school within six months post-graduation. And the thing I'm most proud of is that the starting salary of a bottom line graduate six months after graduation is on average twice what their family income was when they started with us. So we're seeing economic and social mobility within the five to seven years that we work with a student. Mm. Um, and so I, like that to me is the purpose of college. The purpose of college is that kind of transformation. So clearly bottom line is doing great work. And it's fair to say that recently their job may have gotten a lot harder. I'm sure many of you heard or read about the Supreme Court's decision on affirmative action this past summer. And if you hadn't heard, Universities, accepting federal dollars, private or public, are no longer allowed to take a student's race into account during their admissions process. And this Supreme Court decision has had ripple effects in industries and sectors far beyond the higher education space. The legal field, the hiring practices and workforce development strategies of private sector companies, these spaces and many others, in anticipation of a trend have made a set of changes and decisions that, you know, may change the landscape of leadership across several different industries and fields. So I had to ask Steve his take on this. How does this Supreme Court decision really impact the students that he works with? I think in some ways it has had very little impact. And in some ways it has significant impact. Okay. The place where that is that decision is most impactful is at highly selective institutions. And the reality is they weren't really good at admitting students of color to begin with, right? And they're running around with their 8% person of color, student of color metrics, and they're sitting here, right? And so um, do better, 
I got a good friend, Akil, who who calls them highly rejective institutions instead of highly selective institutions, right? Like, do better, right? Like, so at a certain point, they were bad to begin with, mm-hmm. and, you know, they're going to continue to be bad. Mm-hmm. And so little change, right? In, in, in that. Where it's had big change is that, you know, we have seen 30 years ago, California got rid of race conscious admissions through ballot initiative and the enrollment for black and brown students plummeted. And 30 years later, they still haven't recovered that enrollment percentage that they had, you know, 30 years ago. And so it has a significant impact on, I think, not just the practice, of college admissions and college acceptance, but in the psyche of young people who don't believe and now have another reason not to believe that college is a place that's accepting to them, that's inclusive for them. So, right, you have students ask us things like, will I get in trouble if I talk about my identity and my college application? The Common App still has the race question on the Common App. Is it illegal for me to signify my race? Should I or will it be looked frowned upon? How do I talk about my race on my college essay? We have created a psychological barrier, an additional psychological barrier for students who are already facing significant barriers, psychological and systematically. And so that's where it has big impact. And then the thing that I'm most afraid of is that while the decision was very focused in the use of race in admissions, we are now starting to see states go left and use that decision to make other other decisions. Right? I've seen in Missouri, the state attorney general was questioning, you know, whether scholarships based on race were legal. We had a law, um, a bill initiated in Wisconsin where they were trying to make race based scholarships illegal based on this. And so, I don't think we have fully realized the impact of that decision and what it's going to mean on not just education, but on society as a whole. The ironic thing about that decision was that they continued to allow race-conscious admissions in one place in society, and that was the military institutions. Right. So it is okay to purposely identify black and brown students to go into the military academy and to go into the military. But like, so like there, there are aspects of that that just feel inappropriate on a number mm-hmm. of levels. Mm-hmm. At, at best inappropriate, worse malicious, intentionally malicious. I, I just want to first just ask you, how do you address that fear that we just talked about amongst your staff team, amongst the community? Like people look to you, Steve, as an example, a source, a reference point. So what are the stories you have to tell yourself in order to combat the fear and help others do the same? I think, you know, the way we've sort of thought about this, the way I think about this, the way I encourage folks to think about this is as another way for us to take ownership of this process for students, right? I think so much of the college access and college success process is focused on the college. Do they want me and can I succeed there? Instead of flipping that mindset and thinking, is that college worthy of me as a student being on campus? Mm. Do they have the right settings for me to be successful? If we flip the narrative and actually 
because we put the the power in other parts of business, we put the power at the consumer level. It's what the consumer wants. But when we talk about college, we flip it. It's always about what the college wants. And what I keep saying to our staff and we keep saying to our students is that narrative consumerism of like, you are the consumer. You have a dollar. You are going to purchase a future. You are making an investment. And so you need to reward those institutions that have demonstrated they want to make a proportional investment in you. Mm. And so if a college hasn't reached out to you, if a college hasn't hasn't found you, maybe they are not worthy of you. And your job is to find a college that is worthy of your excellence, that is worthy of your time, that is worthy of your investment, right? And so that is the the mindset I want us coming to. And, you know, I live in fear that students are going to be told to, as a way of getting into college, use the essay to describe their identity and how their identity has created barriers and structures and like to be able to like woo the college into some type of acceptance. And my point is like, no, that college essay is an opportunity for you to describe why that college would be lucky to have you on campus, why they should be clamoring to admit you, right? And if we can shift that mindset, if we can really make it what it is, yes, they're going to have to react and they're going to have to do the things. And, and that's the way, gain power back by shifting yes. that mindset and, and know that they've got to be worthy of you, not the other way around. We need to shift that model as a community because to be honest with you, many colleges need our applicants need us to go to them. They are facing financial straits without students applying to those colleges and enrolling in those colleges. And so many colleges may need you more than you need them. It's mm, powerful. So uh, let me ask you one more question in this sort of category. You have written that the recent SCOTUS decision really highlights the fallacy of meritocracy, <laughs> you know, yeah. as a foundation in this country. And so I'd love for you to give us in the same more community a chance to understand what do you mean by that? Why do you, what do you mean by the, the myth of meritocracy and, and why is that important in your estimation? You know, I think we socialize our children in this country to believe mm -hmm. that if you work hard, right, and you put in the effort, that's all you need, that this is the land of opportunity and you can be successful and that will differentiate you from those who are not successful. The reality is, is that money and power buy privilege and buy opportunity at a disproportionate rate. And so any system where because of your name, because of your parents' job, because of your parents' wealth, you get a leg up in that process, it is not a meritocracy. It is by definition biased against a meritocracy. And, and that's what I mean. We have, we have, confounded ourselves to believe that all you need is a little bit of elbow grease, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and, and you'll be fine and you can be successful. And I'm not saying that, that persistence and grit and energy and effort are not important. Right. What I'm saying is that we can't deny the impact of power, privilege and money on opportunities that are afforded people in society. Mm -hmm. When you have stars who can create a resume for their child to get into a highly rejective institution, right? You have an unequitable, non-meritocratic system. And it persists because we keep saying, no, it's the land of opportunity. No, you need this energy. And it's a blatant lie, mm. right? And I think, you know, the fact that students have the same opportunities to go to 
well-resourced schools. Like across the board throughout this process, money and power provide privilege to students in, from affluent families. And the longer we don't recognize that and make adjustments for it, the further and further we get from being a true meritocracy as, as a country. Mm. And, and it's just, it's problematic. It's problematic. And so, so what's yeah. the pathway out? And uh, the reason I ask that is when I hear you say that, and I would imagine when folks listening hear you say that, I'm sure it resonates for a lot of people. There might be a couple of folks who went to those highly rejective institutions <laughs> who are like, well, wait a minute, I've worked hard. What are you talking about? Right. Yeah. Um, and so there's and they a range. Did work hard. I am not neglecting their effort. Right. Uh Uh Uh, So to be clear, I am not saying that people who have achieved things in life didn't work for those things. I'm saying that their pathway was a easier than somebody who didn't have those privileges. So someone else, me, you, another student from another community would have had to work two or three times harder to achieve the same amount of success that that individual achieved. Yes. And that's where I think we get stuck because when we start to dispel the myth of meritocracy, what tends to happen, I've observed in lots of spaces, mm-hmm. is that people who worked hard, because as human beings, it is part of the human experience yeah. that we have suffering, we have to struggle towards goals. None of us are exempt from that, not a one of us. And and so I think folks personalize what they went through as an individual from an analysis of the macro systems. Mm-hmm. And I see you, Steve, trying to push us to not deny people's individual effort, but to still have the ability to talk honestly about the systems young people are navigating today. And that takes discipline because it's really tempting for all of us to say, well, wait a minute, what about me? I need you to see how hard I've worked, what I've sacrificed and what I've been through. I think that often gets in the way of us being able to do the kind of analysis that you're inviting us to do. Mm -hmm. I often joke the plural of anecdote is not data. Right. I think we often will take a single story and then generalize that to larger systems or society. And that is dangerous, right? Because every individual's story is unique to them. We are unique individuals and it is a, a blessed story. Mm-hmm. Right. And, but what we need to do is we need to step back and see the system for what the system is, mm-hmm. right? To see the functionings of society for what they are and not personalize them. I don't care what side of the political aisle you sit on. Mm-hmm. There's a belief that power and money buy privilege, right? You hear it all the time, right? And so like, this isn't a political issue, right? This is an economic issue right? This is a societal issue. It's a power issue, which is very different than a political issue. And so I think we need to be intentional about the way we view and describe the water that we're swimming in. Yes, yes, yes. So, okay. Now let's move into being a CEO. So you see a network of leaders who in the past several years have stepped into executive leadership, Mm -hmm. who are leading organizations that have multiple generations, Mm -hmm. cultures, and identities in one workforce. And what it means to be a CEO is a different thing than it meant even six years ago. So let's talk a little bit about it. What have you found most surprising about being a CEO in the social impact space? I think... The most surprising thing for me has been the weight that I feel of every single decision that I make. 
you know, when I was, I joke when I worked for other, uh, in other organizations, I would look at the CEO and I was like, why can't they make a decision faster? And why'd they make that decision? And then like, you know, I had all these critiques and then I sat in the seat for like six months and I started calling all of them and I was like, yo, my bad. I'm, I'm sorry. I just want to let you know. <laughs> right. But, you know, in my seat, I have the 160 staff who rely on this organization for, to sustain life. I have the 7,000 students who rely on this organization to fulfill the promise that we made to them when we brought them into this school. I have the network of champions and funders who have expectations for what this organization is and could be and needs to be. And so the weight of a decision, even a simple decision, weighs upon me in a way that I was really unprepared for. And I can only most similarly describe to child rearing, right? When you're making a decision for your child and, and right, like you, you make these decisions and you agonize over them because you see the domino effect that that one decision can make. And, and, and for me, it's not, I, I'm making these decisions and the time frame for those dominoes to drop is much shorter as a CEO, right? They drop a lot faster in our organizations. Mm hmm. And that weight of decision, just about every decision is, is powerful. And one that in five short years turned this beard from the dark black to nice salt and pepper. Now, right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. A coach of mine told me, you know, listen, Tulane, every leader is insecure. Oh, yeah. Every leader. I don't care who they are. Every leader is. And so what you speak is truth. And so when I hear that and I listen to you and I'm like, yeah, that's true. I got this, this question, you know, about this and I'm mad and I'm this. And, you know, I mean, I got it too, right? Yeah, I got it yeah. too. Yeah. And yet I want to be liberated mm. in this lifetime from these lies about who I am. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I really want that. I, 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 I desire, I long for it, you know? And so I spend time. Each day, and you're going to be like, this is so corny, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. <laughs> it's all love. I know who you are. <laughs> you know who I am. I know you, you know are. where I'm going. <laughs> I do. I do. I do. You know. I spend each day, but this is the thing. So love is love, and I'm, I'm a, I believe in the love ethic. You know that. I also have started to really play with the power of forgiveness mm. of myself. Mm. So each day now, I have a forgiveness practice. Mm. And what I do is I just take a few beats and I say, who do I need to forgive today? And it can be that, you know, person on my team who said something where they totally skipped over how hard I worked on something. And, you know, and it's a subtle thing, but I just let it go. And a lot of times it's myself. Yeah. Because I bought into something or I, I used my energy in a way that was trying to prove my worth. I mean, that is a big thing. I mean, the amount of time in life for Steve that I have wasted trying to prove myself to somebody. <laughs> like yeah. if I could get that back, I would add years, good years to my life. And so I do play around with the role of and forgiveness. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm up for the fight. So when I say forgiveness, I'm not saying turn the cheek of those who cause yeah. harm to me and my community. No, I'm not suggesting that at all. Yeah. Love is strong, right, Tulane? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but like, so can I forgive myself? Because yeah. I've spent a lot of time worrying about letting people down. And like, what if I accept that part of what's true is that I'm going to disappoint people who yeah. love me, who I love sometimes. And that's just what it is. Yeah. You know, like I'm just really working with what it would feel like if I could accept that 
on a daily basis, you know? No, I think that's right. And, you know, the thing I do is to intentionally find moments of joy and laughter. And I'm a big believer in if you laugh, you will create joy. Yes. Joy doesn't have to precede laughter. Sometimes laughter precedes joy. Yes. And so like for me, finding something that just makes me laugh and brings that spirit up. And so look, this is serious work we all do. This is important work we all do. But the moment we start taking ourselves too seriously, the moment we can't find the joy and laughter, the game is over, we've lost. So this is the part where I normally ask Steve questions that I gathered from social media. But since he and I are both part of a beautiful community convened by Pahara, I decided to gather questions from our fellow Pahara cohort members. By the way, the Pahara Fellowship brings together leaders like Steve and myself who are doing our level best to contribute to a more equitable and inclusive public education system. So I'm going to start with a question from our good friend, Laura Furlong, Mm. also brilliant educator based in California. And she said, Steve has a phenomenal perspective on leading and managing adults who represent a wide array of generations. I'd like to have Steve talk about how he leads and inspires an organization, both spread across different parts of the country and made up of employees with a broad age range and thus very different perspectives on the world. How do you, with such a broad Workforce, Steve, how do you lead and inspire a group of people who have such different views? <laughs> I, part of me wants to say, I don't know, because <laughs> it is it is an evolving practice. What I will say is I have taken it as my job to constantly interrogate the things that I up until today believe as absolutely true. Mm-hmm. I tell my team, I have strong opinions loosely held. And what that means is that new data can influence what I believe. And so it is my responsibility as I I am in community and I am in partnership with the amazing staff of Bottom Line that I am listening deeply, that I am trying to understand what they're saying to me, and that I am interrogating when what they're saying to me drives that emotion in my stomach. When I start to feel that pit and that heat that I just, I don't want to listen, I want to respond, I purposely stop myself to try to understand what is driving that emotional response to what a person is saying. And I'm not going to say it's easy, but what it has forced me to do and what I've appreciated about it is that there are many long-held beliefs that I had about what was true and necessary in a work environment that were actually not something I believed in, but something that was socialized in me because of the institutions that I professionally came up through. Mm. And so for me, I think it is a leader's responsibility to listen, not just here, but to truly listen to what your team is telling you. And then to be really clear when you respond and transparent why you are responding the way you are responding. What is making you think that way? It is really critical. That is not to say that everyone loves working for Steve. I, my wife, my my mother's always asking me, I hope they like you there. I always tell my mom, have you ever had a boss you liked? Um, <laughs> right? So like, I don't, I don't misinterpret, right? right. Like the, the thing. That's uh, right. But, but the idea is they will at least feel heard and feel seen and know that they have access to me, even if at the end of the day, we don't agree. That's powerful. Well, your love ethic is showing, Steve. It is showing. <laughs> <laughs> Got to cover that up. Hold up. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, let, me, let me button this 
button this top button. Let me button this tie. <laughs> <laughs> That's really, I, I love that. And, and, and not attaching people's sort of approval to your commitment to listening mm-hmm. fully. Yeah. Steve, thank you. Thank you for being with us on Say More. Uh, it has been a real gift and delight. Well, you know, we're going to just, we're going to give the people what they want, which is more of you, Steve, which is more of you. I don't know about um, that. Usually people tell me, say less, say less, Steve, say less. You're the first person to ask me to say more. So. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to Say More with Tulane Montgomery so you don't miss out on new episodes. Please also rate and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Say More with Tulane Montgomery is produced by New Profit and Human Group Media. If you want to learn more about our work at New Profit, visit newprofit.org. Thank you so much for joining, and I'll catch you all in the next episode.